0: You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by ShareAbility, a social content company that makes videos people actually want to watch. They work with brands and influencers to create content that explodes across the web through social sharing and organic discovery. For years, ShareAbility has been topping the charts with crowd-captivating videos for brands like Pepsi, Pizza Hut, Sony Entertainment, and Cristiano Ronaldo's Rock, delivering over a billion views, 5 million shares, and 50,000 press mentions. Check out some examples of their work on ShareAbility.com. You are listening to All Things Video. We're your hosts, James Creech and Luke Wang, and today's guest is Matt Geelan. Matt is the former VP of Programming and Audience Development at Frederator, the leading MCN for animation content. And today, he's going to share some secrets around audience development and what's next for him and his business. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Early in your career, you worked as a producer for film, TV, and web series. How did you find your way into the digital space?
1: From day one, more or less. I went to Columbia, and when I graduated, my brother and I decided to make a feature film called The Graduates. Uh, It is not a sequel to The Graduate. It's about a group of friends who go to Ocean City, Maryland, the week after they graduate high school and all the hijinks and debauchery that happens um, in what uh, some of us East Coasters lovingly call senior week. And I studied film in Columbia and thought I wanted to be in the film business. However, making a feature film on a shoestring budget, um, you know, showed me that production is not necessarily where I wanted to be. We finished making the film and I I should say it was it was an amazing experience. Um, But what I enjoyed by far the most was when we decided to self-distribute. And uh, my brother said to me, so why don't you handle all of the social media and all the marketing for this uh, on the digital side? And this was 2007. And so things like, you know, MySpace were still really important. And there was like, you know, 20 or 30 different video sites. And so I basically locked myself in a New York apartment and, um, you know, studied social media and YouTube and how you build an email list for like nine months. And then we self-distributed the film and the film did really, really, really well. Um, you know, we sold thousands and thousands of DVDs. We generated an email list of like 120,000 names by, um, we actually took a piece of advice from Mark Cuban who said, at the time, he didn't understand why films didn't give away their soundtracks as a list generation tool. And so he said, it actually sounds really smart. And so we went out and got a bunch of indie labels to or indie bands to give us music for the film that we included in the film. And then we gave away our soundtrack um, and built up an email list of like 120,000 Uh, Names, which really led to a lot of great results across the board because we could then use that email list to build up the Facebook page and Twitter and so on and so forth. So that led to selling a a tremendous amount of DVDs, both IRL and via the web. We also opened in, I want to say, 15 cities or so um, and played at about 30 college campuses and premiered number one on Hulu and were number one for like 10 weeks. And I think we're still in the top 10 comedies of all time on Hulu. But essentially what that showed me was I really loved the audience development side of, you know, film distribution and the the kind of digital world. And so that experience led to me getting a job at a company called Driver Digital. Uh, Driver Digital was a startup and uh, I was employee number one, was there and, and helped build that company to about Uh, 20 some odd employees over a course of three years. We had a few in-house channels that were pretty good. We did. um, We had a channel that um, kind of the in-house team created. We were focused mainly on mom stuff. But, you know, with a group of 20 something digital natives, uh, mom stuff doesn't necessarily speak to them. And so we had an in-house channel called Wholesome Lane, where we did like parody rap songs and sketches and a lot of fun stuff. After about three years, Driver really wanted to shift into focusing on kids and moms, especially off the YouTube platform. It just wasn't where my head at and wasn't what I was really interested in. And so I reached out to some friends at um, what was then the Next Lab and formerly Next New Networks, because um, you know, back then in New York... and. To some extent to today, it's definitely gotten bigger. But back then in New York, there were just very, very few companies focusing on digital video. And, and so I had made friends with some people over at Next New. They made an introduction to Fred and he brought me on to do audience development for Cartoon Hangover, which launched about a month after I started. And then about four, four months or so after launching Cartoon Hangover, we soft launched Channel Frederator Network. And then over time, shifted my focus mainly to the o os while still overseeing the network development. And that led to um, Channel Federator growing to about 1.2 million subscribers today. And we also launched two other kind of main channels. One is called the Leaderboard and the other is called Cinematica. Leaderboard's at uh, just under 300k and Cinematica is at about
0: 120,000 subscribers. And uh, that brought me to today. Wow. It's great to hear the whole journey. So I guess I want to rewind a little bit and talk about when you're in that New York basement apartment and you're <laughs> discovering YouTube for the first time, how did you teach yourself some of these tactics to grow audience? Um, to be perfectly honest, I looked
1: at the biggest channels on YouTube and said, well, what are they doing that makes them successful? And I should actually rewind a little bit in my story. While I was at college, I was number one in the world at a video game called Age of Empires, specifically the Age of Mythology and Age of Titans editions. And the way I played that game uh, is very similar to the way I look at YouTube, which is I studied what the best players did and I mimicked that and refined that and geared it towards my style. And if you look at a video game, a video game is more or less a series of algorithms, right? Your units have uh, various capabilities and various stats and they're going to compete against other units and it's the matrix of uh, a video game where all these things are interacting with each other is very, very similar to the way YouTube works and the way any sort of platform that's algorithm driven works. When I was sitting in the basement, like thinking about these social networks, I just instinctively went back to, well, let me see what the most successful people are doing and what they're doing well and what they're not doing well. You know, take what works and leave what doesn't and try and refine it and make it our own for uh, our specific brand and what we're trying to do. And so that's more or less how I taught myself. I mean, there was not a ton of resources available at the time. I believe real SEO had been launched at that point. And then I think new TV, I think that may have been a thing, but I also spent a lot of time because I knew next new networks was very focused on building audiences for brands and so I spent a lot of time looking at like what they did with their channels. Uh, you know, they had Vsauce, they had Indie Mogul, Threadbanger, a whole host of other channels. And so I spent a lot of time going, OK, well, what are they doing with their titles? What are they doing with the descriptions and tags and thumbnails
0: and developing, you know, my view of it from there? And how did you meet the Driver Digital team when you ultimately made the switch from independent producer to going in-house and doing the installment full time? So, driver, I believe to this day,
1: and certainly at the time, their primary business is actually um, doing high-end commercials for brands. And so, like they've done a few Super Bowl commercials, they've done, I think, stuff with Pepsi and and Coke and a whole host of of other big brands. And they had just done something for Coke, I believe, where they put together this like animated five-minute thing. It had done extremely well on Crackle, of all things. So. They knew digital was going to be powerful, but they just didn't know exactly anything about it because they'd just been in the, you know, traditional commercial world for so long. So, you know, I came in, I met with them a bunch of times and, you know, they were really excited about like audience building and brand building and, you know, brought me on as the
0: the first employee to help them do that. What are some of the things that have changed about YouTube or online video since that time 2007, when you're first starting to work with uh, your own content in Driver Digital, uh, and today 10 years later? Sure. Certainly a,
1: a tremendous amount. Man, when I started YouTube in 2007, you could download a Chrome extension that would cause your page to auto-refresh at whatever time interval you put in, and that still worked at that point. In terms YouTube. of generating views? Yeah. Um, and so... <laughs> And that was extremely powerful, not just from like a, a, a view standpoint, but because the YouTube homepage was so powerful back then, right? If you were the most viewed video that day, you were going to get an additional two, three, four million views. You know, I, I never did that.
0: but and I guess then, just, just for viewers listening, back when YouTube featured popular content or charts on the homepage, if you were able to quickly amass a high amount of viewership early in the upload stage, then you could hit the top charts. You were featured as a trending video. Mm -hmm. And then the, you know, several hundred million people who were Mm -hmm. organically navigating there each day would see your content and watch it. Exactly. You know, YouTube as a platform
1: has come a long way. I mean, the most popular stuff back in that day was like 240p, um, you know, direct camera, like some calls to action, but not really. And, uh, you know, YouTube certainly evolves. You know, I remember with the Reply Girl fiasco and then the uh, mobile exploit YouTube having to make pretty sudden, pretty drastic changes to what content they feature, which kind of gets us to today in the watch time algorithm, which is uh, really a beast and and really interesting to think about. Because if we think about, you know, how people choose to spend their time right Their their time (coughs) is their currency and therefore it's literally the currency in the creator's pocket, and so from from that perspective, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think they get a lot of heat for it from creators who are not able to do it, and I think it's evolving, and I think it will always be evolving as you know audiences change, as platforms change, as the, the engineers who build the algorithm learn more about all of the various content types, right? Because you know what works for someone who's watching, you know, Spider Man and Elsa. Uh, run around in a forest, people dressed up as, as those blatantly infringing on on Disney versus, um, you know, someone who spends months crafting a one-minute animation video. Like, these are very drastically different audiences. And and I kind of started equating it in the last couple of months to, like, you know, have you ever thrown a party at, like, your house? And you have 10 people, 15, 20 people coming over, right? And you're you're entertaining these 15 or 20 people. For a lot of people, definitely me, That is a bit of a nerve-wracking experience, right? Like you want to make sure everyone's having fun or the food is good. The drinks are cold, blah, 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 Imagine doing that for like a billion people a month. That's YouTube's task. And not only that billion people, but then you have the sponsors of the party who have demands. You have the people working the party who have demands and thoughts and interests and agendas. There is just billions of factors that they have to take into consideration. And, I think the the watch time algorithm, as it is now, is the best possible way to do that in a apples to apples type of comparison, which is you know one of the reasons why Facebook video and people talking about Facebook video kind of can be a very, let's say interesting conversation to have
0: because it's not apples to apples. We've actually talked about that in other episodes of the podcast that there is a need for a standard currency among platforms and that today, Trying to compare a view across Facebook, Instagram, YouTube is not, as you say, an apples-to-apples apples comparison because YouTube has much more stringent requirements. You know, it's it's a user-initiated rather than an autoplay scenario like it is on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And there's a watch time requirement or video completion rate that has to be met before a view occurs, not just three seconds. So it sounds like you certainly agree that watch time is the best metric to evaluate, both for creators, because that determines how long a viewer is willing to stick around as well as for advertisers because there are more monetization opportunities created the longer the content is and the longer the watch time occurs. Yeah, absolutely. I would say the least of my concern is the advertisers. I
1: think they're going to be A-OK. The the biggest concern is uh, creators and audience. I tend to skew probably too far on the creator side as a creator and, and kind of lose sight of the audience side of it. But I think... At the end of the day, as a creator, your main focus needs to be the audience and not necessarily your needs as a particular creator. And I think if you can kind of try and keep that principle in mind, it can it can make more informed decisions. But certainly we're seeing history repeat itself a little bit in the sense of, you know, when I got started, there were 20, 30 platforms. There was a lot of social media outlets and Up until maybe about two years ago, we'd seen that basically contract down to one big winner and then, you know, a few smaller kind of niche type plays. Now we're seeing that all fracture apart again. It's definitely different in the sense of what works on Facebook these days doesn't necessarily work on YouTube and and vice versa. So it's not, you know, one-to-one and then the same thing with Twitter or Snapchat and Twitch, but we are starting to see things like subscription video platforms pop up and I think... Last time I saw a count, it was over like 200 new subscription video platforms. So we're seeing another kind of big attempt at this kind of fracturing and verticalization is the new wrinkle to that fracturing. But I think we'll see another round of contraction probably within the next, I would say, 24 months realistically. Again, it's the internet, so it can happen a lot faster a lot slower. But I think subscription video is really interesting. And where that's headed, I think what uh, the folks over at Elation and Verve are are trying to do uh, is really interesting from a a verticalization perspective. But I also think what, you know, HBO is doing is really interesting. And Amazon is Amazon. They have a video site. But, uh, you know, I think Twitter is in a position right now where they're really struggling corporately. But I think from their agenda and all the news they're putting out, the direction they're moving is is really interesting. and I think that's something that YouTube is seeing as a real lacking in their platform. Uh, and hopefully we some, see some change here pretty soon is the, the social aspect of digital generally, but especially digital video that they really kind of dropped behind Facebook and that opened the door for Facebook in a really big way. And, and hopefully they play some catch up And hopefully they also play some catch up on the analytics front. Real-time analytics was the biggest thing that YouTube has rolled out in the last five years. And that's just a small little thing. Like there's a lot, a lot of analytics data that I think YouTube has and potentially could make available to creators that would be unbelievably helpful. You know, we just saw Facebook come out with a big announcement about analytics. And so... You know, from that perspective, I think there's a lot of room for YouTube to continue to grow. And they were the gold standard in in YouTube analytics for a very long time, but they haven't really done a lot since then. Um, What are some of the metrics you think are missing from YouTube analytics? The way I would look at it is if you're a video platform and you want people to make content for your site, the analytics you need to provide them should give them very clear answers on what to make and what not to make. And I don't think the analytics that we have now give clear enough answers on YouTube. And so from that perspective, it would be a lot of things around um, one thumbnail click-through rate. Thumbnail A, B testing, which isn't necessarily analytics, but it's a product, both of which I would be surprised if we didn't see in the next six to 12 months from YouTube. And then a lot of session duration metrics and session start metrics and session end metrics. The YouTube discovery playbook that they put out, I want to say 2012, 2013, which you can no longer find on the Internet. But I found it because the internet doesn't forget. Using uh, archive.org's Wayback Machine indicates that all of these things are extremely important. You know, every time you talk to to a YouTube audience development person, they indicate that these things are important. And if they're important, then you need to give us data around them so we actually know what's going on. And so. You know, if I know a video about Spongebob is going to start 50% more sessions than a video about Scooby-Doo, well, then I should make less Scooby-Doo and more Spongebob-type content. Um, Aside from analytics, I'd like to see some advancements in the algorithm that were more focused on the merit of an individual video as opposed to the merit of your channel as a trusted resource in the same way that Google Search works. Um, You know, my reverse engineering the YouTube algorithm blog kind of points to what I believe is a real drop in video performance. If it's not a uh, video that speaks specifically to your core audience, because it starts less sessions for that particular keyword. And that if you don't collapse your channel into a very specific niche and you do many varied types of videos, those videos are not going to flourish. Now, I think there's a big exception when it comes to things like personality driven channels. But then I would say, well, the audience is there for that personality, not for the um, specific topic that they're talking about necessarily, or in large part, that vlogger is still going to be constrained by having to appear in every video, right? Like, there's a lot of opportunity if the algorithm was a bit different for Tyler Oakley to have other people host like a weekly show on his channel. The problem is his channel will tank if he ever did anything like that. There's a lot of business opportunities available when you don't have to be so incredibly confined to one particular small little segment. I think that would be great for content creators. I think that would be great for audiences. I think it would probably be great for YouTube. They might have metrics that indicate otherwise, which is why they haven't done it yet. But I don't know. Um, but I think there's there's a whole host of opportunities that really haven't been exploited because either people are, are too afraid of being punished by the algorithm or the algorithm just hasn't presented the opportunity for them to do that in a structured manner. Right. Like anytime you see anything blow up on YouTube, right, you start seeing it mimicked across you know hundreds and thousands of channels. Well, until someone does one of these things successfully, it's not going to be mimicked. And I don't think someone
2: can do it successfully given the current constraints of the algorithm kind of a chicken or egg thing. It's like, how can someone be a trailblazer if the trail won't get blazed in the first place? Right. Given kind of where your thoughts are on all these different platforms, like if you were to start your own media brand today, hypothetically speaking, which platform would you start with and why? I think it would depend a lot on
1: what the constraints of the business were. If I was in a position where I couldn't spend a lot of money to build an audience right and have a long runway where I'm not dependent on revenue to keep the engine running and it's you know funded to to build an audience I would start both on Facebook and on YouTube and I probably have virtually completely different content on both of them um, but still speaking to the same kind of core audience right now that gives you a reason to have the same audience on both platforms as well as develop a unique audience on either platform if I were constrained by the need to generate revenue, YouTube is is really kind of the main place. If you were self-starting your own media brand, there's a, a ton of opportunity to create content for various platforms, right? You have, you have Go90, you have Vessel, you have YouTube, YouTube Red, you have Amazon, you have Netflix, you have Hulu. My guess is you're probably gonna have potentially Apple TV, iTunes sometime in the near future. I know there is some indication that Instagram, Twitter, and definitely Snapchat are all funding content. And those can all be places where if you do have an established production brand or you know something along those lines that you can go to and launch your content there and have the majority or all of that content be funded through one of those platforms. And that's a, a very good model. Yeah, I think it depends on a whole host of different characteristics. Where I'm at right now in terms of launching a media brand um, is that YouTube is still by far the best video site in the world for building a real engaged audience. Facebook definitely has a tremendous amount of scale. But essentially, if we believe that time is people's currency, right? And they say, well, I'm going to give you 10 minutes of my time to enjoy this, right? And that's going to help you because you're going to serve me an ad. But more importantly, that's going to help you because I'm literally choosing to spend what I have a very limited amount of with you and your brand. And that gives your brand many, many opportunities to communicate with that audience and have access to that audience creating a relationship, right? Because that's what we're talking about, right? It's, it's all relationship building. You can't really build a great relationship with a two-second autoplay view on Facebook. The metrics looks great, right? So many shares, so many
2: comments,
1: and and millions and millions of views. But how much time did that person actually spend with you? And did they actually spend it with you? Or did they just spend it in their news feed, completely branded by
2: Facebook with little to no of your branding? Did they even know it was your video? The video gets commoditized because I can't tell the difference between a tasty video or like another food brands video because they're all the same. It's all the same format mm-hmm. camera up high hands underneath fast forwarded by two, three X or whatever. And, you know, I, I, don't have an affinity towards like any particular food brand, right? but those videos are generating like billions of views if, mm-hmm. you know, per month something like that. And I agree. I think, I think that's completely right. It's like it, within the newsfeed, the unbranded aspect of it makes it really difficult to, to, even though the engagement's high, but it's engagement within the context of the newsfeed, not with the brand itself. Right.
1: Exactly. And so from that perspective, YouTube is still number one in my book um, from a, you know, no gatekeepers being able to spend a lot of time with your audience and and really build that relationship because I'd rather have, you know, 10,000 people in love with a media brand than reaching, you know, 100,000 or 500,000 who could
0: care less, whether it was for me or from Tasty. What are some of the audience development strategies that are similar across platforms and what might be more platform specific? In terms of what would be similar
1: across facebook and youtube i would say frequency of post is is probably the biggest one in my view and then there's you know kind of the basics of what makes a good video which is like you've got about on facebook even less time Mm -hmm. but you've got about three to ten seconds to really hook a viewer on youtube you get a little bit more leeway on youtube because someone's already made the decision (laughs) may as well fully invest in this decision (laughs) for 10 seconds on, on Facebook, you've got, you know, maybe a fraction of a second as they scroll through to two or three seconds, if you can kind of catch their eye right away. And so I would say that's a big one. Certainly on Facebook, videos that can be viewed without needing to turn on the audio. Uh, is certainly big. And if you had no audio on a YouTube video, people would probably click away almost immediately. From a kind of platform and technology perspective, your calls to action on Facebook are going to be vastly different than they will on YouTube, even though they're probably the same in principle, like our page, subscribe, blah, 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 watch more videos, et cetera and so forth, and you know those would be some of the the bigger ones in terms of similarities of thing you can do, but potentially past just the call to action part. Like what you're actually calling action to is you know similar or different, and then the same thing with that intro. in, in terms of tweaking it, in terms of um, what content works, from what I've seen, a ten minute video that has. You know 60 to 70 percent in engagement on youtube is going to do 500 to a million two million views on facebook that video might not see the light of day so certainly from a duration standpoint like if you're scrolling through your your facebook feed and you see 10 minutes pop up you're like oh no i don't have 10 minutes to invest in this i've got you know cat pictures and baby pictures that look at I'm giving away my age now you know i think uh from a platform
0: perspective. Those are some of the, the kind of the tactical differences and similarities that I see. you talked a little bit about the YouTube algorithm. And in fact, the article that you and Jeremy Rosen penned together earlier this year called Reverse Engineering the YouTube Algorithm. Tell us a little bit more about that research and what inspired the article. What inspired that research was primarily,
1: we had a content type 107 facts, um, and then another one called Cartoon Conspiracy. And then a show called Tuned Up, which was basically short listicles and then other videos that were very experimental. And we kind of knew generally what our audience wanted to see. However, what we found was there were just vast viewership differences in, especially in our 107 facts, but also noticeable in the short listicles and in cartoon conspiracy. And so that was kind of the first one where it was like, well, we have this show, we have this template, we know people like it, and we know it's going to get a lot of watch time, but why is 107 facts about Scooby Doo performing so much worse than 107 facts about Steven Universe? Right? There's there's a reason here because it's it's roughly the same show. Scooby Doo has a much much bigger audience and uh, brand than Steven Universe. It just didn't make sense to us, and so that that was kind of the first point. The the second thing was we had a show called. Saturday morning cartoons and basically it was a show that we made to promote a lot of the creators in the channel federator network and it would be about a 10 to 20 minute video where we would feature seven or eight different animations from our network and give a whole bunch of calls to action for people to go watch more and for a while that was our biggest performing show for about you know a year or so before we started doing the shorter listicles and, and the 107 facts and we were wondering why the audience for that was growing at such a slower rate than the audience for these other shows. Top of mind stuff is like, well, people are more interested in in brands they know than in in new brands, right? So like if you feature, you know, several animators and there's no brand that immediately alerts someone that they're they're familiar with because it's original animation or original cartoons, then they're less likely to click on it because they don't necessarily understand immediately what it's going to be just by looking at the title and the thumbnail. However, you know, we did a ton of promotion around it in our more popular shows and it just wasn't going anywhere. And so we noticed that every time we put one up, it was actually causing viewership of other videos on our channels to go down and videos that were released after a Saturday morning cartoons weren't performing as well, even though we knew it was going to be a big performer, like a 107 facts about Steven universe. And like, there were just a lot of things that were like, this just doesn't make sense. And let's look at as much data as we can to try and figure out what's going on and what the real reason is behind here. And and that led to um, I think some, some really interesting We'll call them theories about the the algorithm, how the algorithm works that, you know, informed a lot of a lot of programming decisions. Well, what were some of the takeaways after finishing the research? You know, as a business, and I think every YouTube channel should look at themselves as a business, you want stability and predictability. Now, there, there's no guarantees. And even if you like, you know, you buy and sell oil commodities, right? That's going to go up and down. But you know for a fact that the market's always going to be there right? And, and that's kind of what you deal with when you're dealing with YouTube, right? YouTube is the treasury, the Congress, the executive and the Supreme Court of uh, the platform, right? They have complete and total control. And, and as a business trying to build a business on the platform, you need stability and predictability. Now, it doesn't need to be a guarantee, but you need that in order to function. And if you're going to spend, you know, 1000 or $5,000 on a video, You want to have a little bit of certainty that it's going to generate enough viewership to, at the very least, break even on that video. In terms of the key takeaways from... What we found for our audience, which uh, was about a million subscribers at the time, was very, very passionate about cartoons. We found that if a video did 5% of our total subscribers within the first 48 hours, that would be about 50,000 views. We would generate about 20% of our total subscribership in terms of raw views. So that would mean 5% of our subscribers watch in the first 48 hours, we get about 200,000 views on that video it exponentially increases from there. So like if you get, if we put out a video that was 10 or 15% of our subscribers watched in the first 48 hours, we were looking at um, 200 to 400% of our audience would watch in like the first week or the first month, right? So that goes from 2 million to 4 million views given our audience at the time. And so we call that view velocity. So if we had a very high view velocity in that first 48 hours, I believe it was 92% of the time that video would do, uh, we could predict the viewership within about 20,000 views, what that video would do. And so that was kind of the big thing was really focus on driving views in those first 48 hours to accrue watch time. Which then helps the content rank higher in search and also perform better in recommended videos. (laughs) Exactly. Follow on viewership. Exactly. Um, And the way it kind of started to look was like, there were a couple of windows within a video's life that determine its viewership. So that first window is about 48 or 72 hours. The second window is seven days from the launch of the video. The third window is the first month, and then it's just kind of an evolving window over the remaining life of that video. And there's probably a series of metrics that are weighted at different times given an individual video that determine its performance. The the biggest long-term one that we've seen uh, being an indicator of how successful the video will be in the long tail is the average view duration. Average view duration is really the only window we have into session duration and quote-unquote watch time. For, for an individual video's performance. The next big thing that we kind of found evidence for was uh, negative view velocity, which would be if a video performed very poorly under 5% of our total subscribers, that video was basically dead, more or less after the first couple of days, right? I mean, you know, you get 3% of your subscribers to view, uh, that's about 30,000 views. A lot of those videos never made it to you know 150,000 views, right? Which would be less than 15% of our total audience. And in addition to that, we found some evidence to indicate that that poor performing video harmed overall viewership and our library viewership. Probably needed about another month of research to really find it out. And and from a sample size perspective, a, a much broader sample size, but essentially the logic behind it is that if you upload a video or several videos that get a very small percentage of your audience to watch early on, YouTube looks at that as poor channel performance and that your channel is not capable in relation to other channels of generating uh, a lots of session starts and lots of session time. And therefore, it reduces the value of your library videos and
0: drives less viewership to them. In other words, videos that perform well will continue to perform even better because YouTube will show them algorithm love. Videos that perform poorly, especially in the first 48 hours and have negative or poor view velocity are going to get penalized by the algorithm. And not just those videos, but follow on videos after that, because YouTube has seen the channels not driving session starts and session time, which are directly linked to ad monetization opportunities. 100 percent. And I would say that. There's also
1: a percentage of that or an element of that that is just there's less people coming through your library on a given day if that video isn't bringing them to your channel or starting their session on your channel. There's definitely some of that mixed in there, but I would say from a from broader perspective... If, if we believe what YouTube says is true, which is that they want to promote channels that are capable of starting lots of sessions and keeping people on the platform for a long time, well, then it makes sense that a poor performing video would harm the overall channel. In addition to that, the concept of session starts and the idea that YouTube wants to grow the audience of a channel that's capable of starting a lot of those sessions, then it makes sense that high-performing ones would get additional support. Even if each individual video on the channel performs less well on its own, they're going to continue to feature that video in relation to someone else's videos because they want to grow that channel's audience because they're capable of starting lots of sessions. And I believe it was like two or three years ago at VidCon. And um, it's actually really disappointing that YouTube hasn't done more sessions at VidCon like they used to do where they actually had like audience development specialists and algorithm technicians like talk about the algorithm, give presentations on it. You know, it was about two or three years ago at VidCon, they did a presentation and a graph they showed was basically if someone comes to YouTube once a week, they're going to watch 15 videos. Whereas if they come seven times a week, they're going to watch hundreds of videos and spend a tremendous amount of time. Therefore, channels that are capable of bringing people back to the platform many times in a given week are extremely valuable because they create very long sessions and basically super fans of the YouTube platform. And therefore, channels that are capable of doing that get more additional promotion. Seems like a
2: lot of this, if you were to take yourself and put yourself in the seats of YouTube, and just think what's going to continue to drive more users, because I think on their end, they're all about having people watch YouTube so they can collect data and information and funnel that through the rest of the Google company and to sell ads to advertisers. So whatever metrics or or I guess you call them events that a creator can do to drive those two initiatives, they're going to reward and then vice versa, whatever detracts from it, they will like said, penalized from, from their algorithm. I think that's definitely a
1: part of it. I would actually look at it more from an audience perspective. I was reminded at this past VidCon of the importance of kind of the audience question as, as a platform and as a content creator. And YouTube has always, 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 in my view, put the audience first. And the entire algorithm is designed to create the best possible viewer and audience experience before they even talk about, you know, advertising. I think they look at advertising potentially as a necessary evil, but as a second tier to audience. Now, yeah, there are definitely groups within YouTube and within Google who that's their primary focus. That's their number one concern. And that's what they advocate and push for. But I think YouTube as a platform predominantly says What's the best experience for the audience while still trying to have a balance of other needs such as advertisers and content creators, but audience comes first, right? Well, if it was just audience, then there would be no ads and blah, blah. So from, from that perspective, I think every decision YouTube makes primarily starts with the, is this helpful to the audience? Is this what the audience wants or is it harmful to the audience and not what they want? Um, and from that perspective, so many of the decisions make so many sense, right? Because, you know, if we go back to the idea that if someone chooses to spend a lot of time with a piece of content, right, it's, it's the biggest and potentially one of the only kind of true data points to show how interesting and engaging a video is. The, the advertising benefit is actually a, a secondary benefit of designing an algorithm that keeps people on your platform for a long time. Just because if people are coming back to your platform more frequently than they did previously and watching more videos and, and spending longer times there,
0: there's naturally going to be many more opportunities to serve them advertising I'm sure we could geek out about audience development strategies and platform hacks all day long, and maybe we should. I think we should uh, talk about doing a part two sometime, but I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about a paywall. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right. Uh, uh, We should switch gears and talk about what's next for you.
1: I am in the process of launching my own company and consultancy. Um, we're gonna call it Little Monsters Media Co. and just go by Little Monster. I'm really excited about it. I'm working with some some really awesome people doing some really interesting things in the digital video space, and having the primary focus be audience and, and audience building is it's a really cool and unique opportunity. So I'm really excited to be doing this and working with some some really awesome people. What prompted that decision? What motivated you to want to take the leap and be an entrepreneur? So Frederator reconsolidated around kind of the core cartoon business, um, at the very beginning of June. And my wife and I decided it was really a good time to kind of go in a different direction than what Frederator was going in. And, you know, after talking with Fred about it, he said it made sense and there would be no hard feelings. And there's certainly none on, on my side. I absolutely love my time there. And, and Fred was a, a really tremendous boss and it was a great, great experience and a great opportunity. That said, when when they reconsolidated around the kind of the core cartoon business, I left and spent a couple of weeks like looking at different job opportunities and seeing what's out there and going out and meeting with people. And you know, it was it was a run-up to VidCon and I had, you know, three presentations to complete, which I hadn't completed coming out of VidCon. You know, I got I got a few job offers and and they were all very interesting and just for a whole host of reasons, the various opportunities didn't make sense either. Know, geographically or from, from an industry perspective, but I got more and more and more excited about kind of building up my own consultancy in, in my own business. My brother, who's who's run his own business for um, 13-ish years now, gave me every reason in the world to reconsider. And thinking about all of that, I still made the decision to to jump in with both feet with, a, you know, at the time, a five-week-old baby and a mortgage and all these other things. You know, I think... Every now and then in life, you kind of gotta put yourself in a position where it's it's sink or swim. And I've had a great job for you know the last six years, and especially in the last three years with Fred. And I'm in a position where there's a big opportunity here for people with this skill set to really help media brands build real engaged audiences. And I think it's a win for everyone. I think it's a win for the people helping the companies build their brands. I think it's a win for those brands because they have a big audience. And I think it's a, a win for the audience as well because if a media company is spending a lot of time and energy and money putting out content that is not, generating audience for any number of reasons either the audience is missing out on an opportunity to be really entertained by this great content or the brand is wasting time and money on producing content that is not great for for the audience and so the audience is going to get more great content and um yeah i think it's i think it's a really exciting time to be an online video there's a tremendous amount of opportunity out there from both a um platform and an audience perspective
0: I love the fact that your entrepreneurial brother is the one trying to dissuade <laughs> you from starting your own company. Yeah, well,
1: I, I think it was more from, he he's certainly very protective of me. He's hes four years my senior. And so he was like, you need to know all these things uh, before you make this decision so you can make an informed decision. Oh yeah, it's not for the faint of heart. Yeah, um, but it might also be that you know, I have a, I don't want to say rebellious, but it's a rebellious streak <laughs> where if someone says, oh, you can't do that, it's too hard. I'm going to be like, oh, no, we're going to do this now. And certainly if it's something that I'm passionate about and care deeply about, it is a nice little bit of added motivation to the very rational and clear logical thinking that I I normally uh, try to live by. What is the hardest part so far of launching your own business? The hardest part I would say is that I tend to like to work at a bit of a breakneck pace. And I have a, a tendency that I'm trying to break a little bit of holding... Expectations extremely high for myself, and mirroring those expectations with with others, and trying to step back a little bit and work at a more, I would say, appropriate pace for for everyone is what is probably the more internal obstacle. In terms of a, an external obstacle, I would say that it's um, articulating clearly what exactly it is I do, because there's kind of two things, two main things I'm doing right now. The first is like video optimization and audience development tactics and strategies. And that's a bit nebulous. Now, there's also a a really strong content part of of what I've done. And so there's definitely a bit more, I think, security involved in terms of knowing that that's going to provide real results for people. And, you know, I I have a very long track record of building audiences for own and operated brands, as well as helping brands build their audiences, especially with the creators in the Channel Frederator Network. We grew at twice the rate of other channels, and that was in animation, uh, which was crazy. And so there's definitely a lot of merit there, and there's definitely a lot of weight there, but it is a little bit more nebulous. And then the second thing is paid media promotion. So I spent the last six years working in AdWords to develop audiences on YouTube, and that's much more concrete. And I know much more clearly, if you spend this, I know I can generate this with a potential upside of this. And there's even some brands that it's possible to utilize AdWords to generate revenue, which, you know, go figure, you'd want your marketing spend to generate a profit. Sometimes that gets frowned upon in terms of like using marketing spend digitally to generate revenue, specifically on video platforms. I think that's the primary goal of a paid marketing spend and not to just invest in just subscribers and just long-term viewership in the hope that that marketing spend will have an ROI, but to actually do it on day one of that spend. What does the
0: future hold for the online video space? Any
1: predictions mm-hmm. on Ooh, what? we're going to see. So we talked about this a little bit earlier. Um, certainly, SFOD. Is a really big deal. You know, I think at last count, there were 200 some odd SBOD services these days. You know, I think that'll continue to expand potentially for another, you know, 18 months or so until we start seeing a uh, consolidation. And consolidation from competition, M&A, start running out of money, what's going to happen? All of the above. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the traditional media companies will certainly be able to keep their standalones afloat. Um, but I think we'll see um, a bundler come along um, in some form. Uh, I think Apple TV is really, really interesting in this regard. What they're doing over at Alation & Verve is is super interesting from a verticalization standpoint. And I think the biggest thing, in my view, is the mobile question. And I think SVOD, in a lot of ways, solves the issues of monetization on mobile that I think has been the bane of many a YouTuber's existence and a lot of video distributors' issues. And I think SVOD solves that in a very unique way. But that said, I don't think, and, and I could be completely wrong. And I think the numbers prove me completely wrong. I personally don't think the mobile viewing experience is really fantastic. And I think it's going to be hard to convince people to pay somewhere in the range of 50 to 70 to $100 for a whole bunch of different SVOD services. And I think it's going to be a huge pain for them to be like, I'm on Amazon Prime and I'm on, you know, uh, Netflix and this, and now you want me to pay five. And like, they have like 20 different subscriptions. And I think there's an opportunity for for someone to come along and kind of streamline a lot of this. But then it's, it goes back to like, wait, the whole reason TVs in a point of turmoil is because of the great unbundling. And people are like, well, then it's a la carte. And it's like, okay, there could be an interesting model around. Like you're going to get, 20 hours of streaming and you can stream whatever you want across all of these services and we're going to distribute based on where you spend your time and that sort of thing. That could be interesting. But yeah, I mean, we're we're in a point of tremendous change in the digital video and TV industries. You know, I'm sure film will probably be next, but I think they've got a much longer runway than TV does. It was really interesting. I, mean, I was thinking about this the other day. The vast majority of media producers, it seems, don't invest a tremendous amount in the idea of understanding how the digital platforms work and operate. And I don't know exactly why that is. I mean, I, I definitely have a number of theories around it. And and this just could be because I'm launching a business that can help you do this. <laughs> um, I think there could be a lot more investment into understanding how these audiences and these platforms work, since it is so much different than. Uh, TV and, you know, in TV, you're, you're mass broadcasting, you know, and therefore you can mass advertise in digital. It's a one-to-one relationship. Every different stream is an individual relationship directly to that viewer. And your marketing has to be that same way in an individual, highly targeted pursuit. And so it'll be really interesting to see what kind of technologies and and startups enable these more traditional media brands to do
0: that better. Last question, something we ask everyone on on the podcast, and this might be a little bit different for you since you're starting your own business today. We like to ask people, if you were starting a new company in the online video space, what would you do? If I had $10 million to start a company in the online
1: video space, I would say, first and foremost, there's a tremendous opportunity right now in creating content for platforms. So the idea of investing money into content and only into content to build an audience for a media brand would probably be secondary to building a company that was capable of selling content to a lot of these digital outlets. But that's also because I'm a content guy. I think there's a tremendous amount of development to be done in the digital video space, especially around like SVODs. But you're also gonna be competing against a lot of the big boys and not knowing enough about technology and programming where I feel like I could do it to myself. I wouldn't feel comfortable jumping into that that pool. But I think there's a tremendous opportunity there. Live streaming programming has always, been, for like the last three years, I've, I haven't understood why. I mean, I, I get the economics of it, but still you would think from just like a content creator's perspective, the creation of like live streamed shows. And we're starting to see a little bit of that, especially with like Facebook, where you're actually creating appointment viewing and the urgency within a viewer, right? Because that's the biggest problem with video on demand service like YouTube, which is there's no urgency for anyone to watch that video, right? It will always be there. Now, yeah, there's passion, there's love, there's wanting to see the most recent thing. There's the, I can't get enough, you know, Phil DeFranco, so I have to watch his next video. But there's no, no urgency. There's no, well, if you don't watch this, Everyone's going to be talking about it tomorrow, right? There's no Game of Thrones on on YouTube. And I think live streaming might be a route not to a Game of Thrones, but to more of that urgency where it's only available at that time, in that moment, and people want to be a part of that moment. And, you know, the feel jump from out of space where they have like 20 million concurrent live streams or something, which was like, you know, world record by, you know, 200X or whatever. And it's still 20 million people watching a single stream, like, TV does that like regularly. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, from, from that perspective, you know, I find that space really interesting and, and something to watch because I think there's a lot of
0: opportunity from a programming standpoint there. And where can people find out more about you and more about Little Monster?
1: You can definitely find out more about me on Twitter. So working on get those websites that are, you know, I've only been doing this for like three weeks. So <laughs> give, me, give me a moment. So if you want to follow me at Matt Gielan, that's M-A-T-T-G-I-E-L-E-N on Twitter. That's the best way to stay up to date with me. And then uh, eventually there will be a website at
0: littlemonstermediaco.com. This has been so much fun. I love nerding out about audience development stuff. As I said, we got to do a part two because there's just so many more things that Luke and I wanted to ask you. But thanks for sharing some insights. Great to hear about your background, and the journey you've had learning about the space and being self-taught in so many ways as, as truly the best audience development specialists always have been in digital media. And uh, really excited to see what you'll do next. Awesome. Thank you guys very much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.